All right, welcome to a financial planning podcast with the down-to-earth vibe. Sasquatch listens while solving his weekly crossword puzzle. This is Through the Pines. On this episode, we'll cover the accumulation phase of wealth. So the accumulation phase can include an, an emergency fund, building an emergency fund, paying off debt, your retirement savings, insurance, and more. So we will cover these topics on this episode of Through the Pines. Let's bring in our Forbes Best in State Wealth Management team for Utah, Baxter Nelson and Associates, also the Advisor Hub, fastest growing advisors to watch under $1 billion, and the receivers of the Ameriprise Clients Experience Award. Rex, thanks for coming on the show. And then we have Brandon here in studio in the Banyan One trailer inside the Monarch building on historic 25th street. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Brandon. Yes. Yes. All right. So getting into it right away, we have, um, well, first of all, like our Facebook page, follow us to keep up on all the stuff, subscribe to us on our YouTube channel through the pines podcast and our Instagram at pines underscore podcast. So you do not miss an episode of through the pines accumulation phase. So what we decided to do was we decided we did all of the ages, right? Like what your money looks like when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, all the way up to retirement 80s, I think we did, 90s maybe. So then then what we decided was some people go through different phases in their life and may experience accumulation phases, not in their 20s and 30s, but maybe in their 40s and 50s or something. And so we're going to talk about some of the phases in your financial career, financial journey. Journey is probably a better word for that. Uh, beginning with the accumulation phase, starting with the emergency funds. So, uh, Rex, is this the first thing you advise people to do is coming up with an emergency fund or with the, because this is always the debate or is the first thing you do is pay off debt. So we we're fans of, of getting the emergency fund first. And so, okay. so that you're not having to incur additional debt. Um, and this goes contrary to, to other, you know, radio hosts and, and podcasters and clearly not and, as, as as wise as you are but uh, yes i totally understand clearly uh-huh. clearly so so we you know we we want to we want to stop the bleeding first and stop racking up the debt and part of that is is making sure that we have an emergency fund so that when those emergencies happen we've already got a solution for that we're not having to 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 go into debt further and, and put off even further our progress Okay. And so that is, that is the first step that we recommend. Perfect. What's a good emergency fund look like? You know, typically three so to six. It, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Rex. Depends. It depends. Brandon, it depends. do you want to cover this? <laughs> I was He's on eager. it. Yeah. Yeah. Three to six months is typically what we like to see, but like Rex says, it depends right on, on a various amounts of factors. How, how much are you, you know, how much are you living on is, is kind of that, that um, multiplier by the three to six months. But then how's your income split, right? Is, is it a two income household? Is it a single income household? Um, and the reason for that, right, is if you're a two income household and one person loses their job, you only lost half your income. And so it's a little bit easier to get through things. If it's a single family household, then, you know, uh, a job loss could be a little bit more scary. Um, and, and it also depends on what your line of work is. Is it a line of work that is fluctuating and that you get pay 
up up months and down months? Or is it a government job that you're getting the same check every time it's almost impossible to be fired? And so you kind of weigh all those factors in in addition to what you're personally comfortable with and and come up with, you know, what what is a responsible emergency fund. When we say three to six months expenses, that is meaning if if the paycheck stopped, what would it take you to get through the month? And you know, get to the next month. So take that number. Well, it's it's so in most, well, many cases, it's the same amount you're making. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you lose your job, you usually stop four hundred one k contributions. Yeah. Taxes go away, right? So it might be you know seventy five percent of of your okay. gross, but maybe your take home, right, yeah, might be yeah. a really good way to to look at that. Okay, Rex. Yeah, we we really like to to look at at least a three months of your take home spending is what we'd like to see. Um, at a bare minimum, if your if your job is is fairly secure, then we feel good about that. If you're if you're in a, a job that to where you may be commission based or sales based, um, or you may be affiliated more with a startup company or something that that might be a, a little more fluid employment, then we like to lean closer towards that six months of your spending. And, and a lot of people get that kind of confused with your gross income and it's not your gross income because again, like, like Brendan said, you know, and if you, if you lose your job, a lot of that, that gross income goes away, whether it be the taxes, whether it be um, the 401k contributions or, or some of the other benefits that, that again, we need, we still need life insurance. We still need some of those other things and we'll get into that, but, but we really want to focus on kind of your, your necessary spending over the course of the next three months and, and making sure that we have that covered. All right, Rex, where should these, where should people keep their emergency fund? So I'm, I'm always a fan of having one month of your, of your emergency fund as your baseline in your checking account. So let's say that you're, that on average you spend 5,000 a month. And so I typically want a 5,000 baseline in your checking, meaning that it may fluctuate up to 10, back down to five, up to 10, back down to five. And then I like your second one in just your savings account. And so, I, you know, I'd have another $5,000 in a savings account. And then I would have months three through, you know, if you have a third um, up to your sixth month, then typically I do that in a, in a high yield savings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I personally like having a firewall kind of between um, where I'm housing that, meaning that it takes a day or two to get at that months three through six, because I, I want you to have to sleep overnight just to make sure that it's an emergency and it's not a contrived emergency, if you will. But it's a really pretty dress or something, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 So is yeah. that, I can't remember the, the term you just used for that, but are you suggesting like a money contrived. market, a money market account <laughs> at a different bank that is something that you, you would have to like request funds from? Right. So, so there's a lot of, and again, you want to make sure it's a, you know, an FDIC, you know, qualified institution Mm -hmm. or, or again, a high yield money market, something like that. But whether it's an investment firm, whether it's at a online um, bank, um, something along those lines to where it takes me a day to, to move the money through an ACH or through some form to get over into my checking account. Okay, perfect. So emergency fund, is number one. I like that. Uh, do you get pushback on that versus paying off debt? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. You, you get a lot of people that are like, well, I'm only making, you know, 
2% on my checking account or 1% or half a percent or a tenth of a percent and I'm paying 10, why do I want that much in, in my emergency fund? And, and I can certainly see that argument. And, and if the job is extremely stable and secure, um, you know, then, then I'll let them make that decision as far as risk goes. But my experience is that, that when people do that, the majority of people don't, don't follow through on getting the debt paid down and then getting the emergency built up. And so by doing the emergency first, one, it's setting the habit of the savings, they're still making the minimum payment on the debt. And then once it's there, you know, re refocusing that savings back onto their debt, they're already used to that being gone and into their savings. Okay. And and it was so painful in doing that that lots of times it it starts setting the stage that that they're feeling the pain of having the debt, and not wanting the debt, and it, it just reinforces those good habits. Makes and sense. So, it, but it, it we absolutely I get some pushback for sure. Yeah. So. All right. So once that is done, Brandon, talk to me about how to go about paying off your debt and what should your debt income ratio. B, I have in the notes 25 to 35%, but what is that? Your take-home, your gross? What are we talking here? Yeah, gross. Um, and and so ideal, and this is this goes back to being in the accumulation phase. When when you're later on in life, you know, we have a lot of clients who have paid off all their debt, and that feels really good, and that that's, you know, oftentimes the healthier place to be. But when you're in that accumulation phase, often younger, right, you're, you're trying to leverage, you're trying to get into a house, you're trying to... Um, you know, sometimes you need to do it for student loans or cars or things like that. Um, and, and so you'll use debt. But what we want to see is that that your debt payments aren't too painful. Right. And, and and I actually get that a lot from, you know, kids of clients who call and they're like, I'm trying to get into a house. How much can I afford? And, and they're lending institution will lend right up to a 45 percent debt to income ratio. Yeah. What that means is that of all of your gross income, 45 percent is actually going towards paying down debts like mortgage, cars, student loan, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And and from my experience in, in working through plans with people, that's way too high. Like 45% is just going to be painful. That's gross. So so the 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 more optimal range is kind of that 25 to 35 percent, meaning that of all of your gross the big number, right? The the biggest number on the check. You take that and divide that by four, and that gives you 25% of your gross income. Mm-hmm. And we'd prefer that all of your debt payments can be within that 25%, right? So your entire mortgage and any other you know, credit card, car payment, whatever else you have, all of that fits within 25% of your gross income. Okay, so if I want to buy a house right now right. in Utah, average house price is what? 400 350 yeah, probably for entry four, level four four fifty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, probably close to four. Four payment on that is roughly. Oh, Brian's gonna get uh, his calculator <laughs> out because what I what I want to know is how much do you have to make to? Do you know what I mean? To like, because your your average debt is what, and then what do you got to make to buy a house these days? Um, but it also depends on your down payment too, right, Brandon? So true. you should be saving yeah. in addition um, towards that house so that you can put down the twenty percent. I mean, so. So if you you know if you're buying a four hundred thousand dollar house, you should be putting eighty thousand dollars down towards it, putting the the loan at three hundred and twenty thousand, and so as you're running your numbers, Brandon, run it on three twenty, 
Um, three, current mortgage rates, and again, they fluctuate all over the place, but currently they're at you know roughly six and a half, give or take. Dang it, I, I should have put that in as you're going. So so I, I did a little bit more conservative on interest rate, 7%. I did 380, right? So $20,000 down um, on a $400,000 house. That would bring you to a principal and interest payments of about 25, 28 or 2,500 bucks a month. In addition to that, you're going to have insurance and you're going to have property taxes. And, and so by the time you get insurance and property, you're probably at about $2,900 per month. And that's, man, that's what's hard, right? Is you take 2,900, multiply that by four, and that's take home of 11,600. And, and that's, I think, illustrates- 11,000 a month? Yeah. Of yeah, gross, yeah, right? Which is really hard, and and I, I think a couple things to consider on this, right? Is 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 first of all, it that's could, no cars, no student loans, no credit cards. That's just the house, just the house. And a big part of the problem is interest rates. Mm-hmm. Interest rates being as high as they are, with the home values as high as they are, it makes it really really hard. And so I think the temptation is to let that debt-to-income ratio balloon out, right? My loan officer said I can do 45%. Right now, all of a sudden, I can almost cut that cut that income in half, you know, and get approved. I, I, I think, you know, I see a lot of people kind of at that 35% debt-to-income ratio, and that's still within the realm of like, all right, doable, but it's going to be tight. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that makes sense. But, but I think it's important to remember that just just because you want to do something doesn't mean we can do it, right? We need to figure out a plausible way to make this work. That was and, my next question. It's and, just because they allow you to take that much out right. doesn't mean you should, right? Right. And and so maybe, and that's where working with an advisor, working with someone to just work through the numbers and say, all right, how do we, how do we pull this all together? You know, how can we, I, I remember when we were looking at buying our first house, there was a house we really liked. It was well within what our loan officer said we could afford. Um, we went and we looked at it, we're like, let's do it. We're going to buy it. And, uh, <laughs> it was Thanksgiving. Ironically, we went and got a pizza at Costco, came home and I was like, I just don't feel good about, it. you know? And so I went and I crunched all the numbers and, 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 and it would, it, we could have pulled it off probably, but it would have been so painful. It would have been so tight financially. We ended up get buying another house. It was a great house, just, you know, a lot, a fair amount less. And, and my wife and I look back on that still as one of the better decisions we made, right? Mm-hmm. It allowed us to just be comfortable while, while we built, you know, income and built all the other things. And so I, I, I think similarly, you know, and, and now is a different time than it was then because now pri- house prices and interest rates are so much higher. But I think you still look for opportunities, right? Can we buy a duplex and rent out half? Can we, you know, can, can we make something else work? You know, maybe maybe instead of buying a house, we're buying a townhouse or buying an apartment that we can build equity in. And and so there's so many variable factors. The other thing that's important is, is you know, a debt to the income ratio of 35 percent. If you're making 50 grand is a lot different than if you're making one hundred thousand dollars a year, yeah. you know. And so, you know, these are rules of thumb. They're not like hard and fast. If you do this, then you'll be fine. They're really you should be sitting down looking at budgets, looking at what, you know, you can afford and what you're currently living on. But there are rules of thumb that prevent stress, right? Yeah. Yeah. It provides cheap and easy guidance, <laughs> but cheap and easy guidance, but cheap okay. and easy guidance yeah. isn't necessarily always the best okay. <laughs> solution. All right. All right, Rex. Um, so when it comes to paying off your debt so you can put yourself in, in a better position, high interest rate or high dollar amount first? So I think, I think it depends on, on what motivates you. And, and we'll get into this in, in our next 
you know, in, in a future podcast a little bit, but from a financial standpoint, we want to attack high interest rates first. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so we want to work down from the highest interest rate, start paying those off, get those paid off as quickly as possible and then work on down. Um, psychologically it, you know, a lot of people need those wins. They need to feel accomplishment and the, the way to feel accomplishment to keep yourself self-motivated is to pay off the smallest balances first and then to roll those payments up into the next one and the next one and, and so forth. Um, and, and so you have to know yourself well enough to know which direction at the end of the day, the goal is to get them paid off as fast as you can. Mm. Um, and so it, it really depends that the last thing you want to do is get started and then stall out and, and not make any progress. Okay. So, so if someone pays off all of their, um, you have good debt versus bad debt, but let's just say they're, they're free and clear of credit cards and car loans and all they have left is their house. Is that something they need to work on paying off or do they just need to work on then moving to the next step as far as retirement savings? So I think it depends on the interest rate that you're making on the house um, or having to pay on the house, not making on the house, but having to pay on the house. I think that's part of the equation. And, and so, you know, a lot of people today still have loans at two and a half, three percent, three and a half percent, things along those lines. And that's a really low interest rate. And so if over time you're going to make five, six, seven percent on, on your investments in your investment portfolios, an argument certainly can be made for going ahead and, and keeping the money invested and, and just making the minimum payment on, on those loans. Um, personally, I'm not a fan of debt. And so I try and get things paid off as quickly as I can. Uh, although that's not necessarily from a financial advice standpoint, you know, going to get you the furthest ahead over time. And so it's, it's, you've got to take into consideration your comfort level with having debt and what's motivating you and, and why you want it paid off. Um, but the, the financial calculation is fairly easy is can I deduct the interest? What's my actual true borrowing cost? And what am I, what's my opportunity cost to make on the money? And, and that's something an advisor certainly can, can help walk you through your break even cost between should we pay off more on the house or should we invest it? Um, you know, I, I do think that before you start paying extra on the house, you certain, there are certain things that you should be doing. You should be maxing out um, the, the contribution to get the match, the company match on your 401k. And so you should be taking advantage of that very first before you start paying off extra on on a house if the house is the only debt left so that there's a few things like that we want to make sure that we've got a few other things shored up um such as disability coverage life insurance coverage things like that before we start um doing extra on 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 debt in certain areas um so is it worth it to and maybe this is a silly question i don't know to put like a, what is it, like a hundred or 200 bucks a month extra on your payment so that it makes an extra payment per year to knock that interest down. Um, in addition to adding money to uh, your retirement or, you know, where you're splitting that money up, or would you suggest putting all of it into like a, like a savings plan or something? Well, you definitely want to make sure you're getting the company match. If your company offers a match at, you know, 6%, then you need to be doing the 6%. Oh, I'm in right, on the house. That company match. Right. I'm just yeah. saying versus another savings plan. Oh, gotcha. Right. You're talking about should we put $200 more towards the house or should that $200 go into a savings plan or a 401k yeah. or something? And I'm saying get the match first. If match. you're talking 200 on top of that, yeah. 
um, then then I think that that's a fine way to do it, right? There's mm. if you if you pay, you know, half of your payment every two weeks, um, then that essentially gets you an extra payment a year. If you so there's different different tricks, right, or, or rules of thumb as far as different ways to do it. Um, to get that paid down a little bit quick. If, if you do that typically, and I, I can't remember the math exactly on it, but I think it shaves off like six years off your more off a 30 year mortgage. If you make half of your payment every two weeks, mm. because it gets that extra payment every single year and, and it cuts down on enough interest to shave off years off your mortgage. Um, it, similar thing of an extra, you know, couple hundred dollars a month would do something very, very similar. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely worth doing to save that interest, but we want to make sure that the other areas of life are getting shored up at the same time. I know yeah, that Brandon. Some sometimes I've seen people come in and they just want to pay off the house, pay off the house, and that's fine, right? At the end of the day, as long as you can afford it and hit your other financial goals, kind of like what Rex was saying, that's fine. But but I, I remember it was presented once to someone who wanted to pay off their house. They said, "Well, what if we just what if?" we just put it into a Roth IRA, right? We've got some extra room in your Roth IRA or Roth 401k. We'll build up the savings there. You can even invest in a fixed rate, right? If you got a 3% on your house, we can go open a Roth with a 5% CD, you know, and we just walk those along. That amount in the Roth will actually grow faster because you're getting a higher interest rate. And then if you still want to at retirement, take it all out and pay off the house, we can do it, right? It's a tax-free distribution. We can pay off the entire house balance and keep the spread, you know, a couple thousand dollars extra to go on vacation, you know? And so I think ultimately it just comes down to the math and understanding what the math is and then what you're comfortable with. Do we just want the debt gone and we're all right being short a few thousand dollars that we could have otherwise because we just want to get the debt out of the way and that feels better? Or do we want to try and maximize the efficiencies and we're willing to take on a little bit more risk? And I think it's, there's not a right or wrong answer. It's just a, a personal decision on, on what, what speaks to you, I guess. No, sure. Uh, I, you have a start. Go ahead, Rex. I think, Brandon, just really quick. I think something that people frequently forget is that the greatest secret to compounding interest is time, is the impacts of time. And so by putting that money into the 401k plan or into a Roth IRA or into your, your regular investments early in life, is you're allowing that money to grow and to compound and to achieve something amazing over your life. And, and so it doesn't do you a lot of good to be debt free at retirement if you have no additional savings built up, right? Because you're still, you still have to have a house to live in, which is now paid off, which is great. But then you're just living off of, off of social security or government subsidy because you haven't saved. And so you need to be able to, to do the savings. It, you know, lots of times you can achieve both and and still have it paid off but if you wait to to start saving until you're 50 because you bought a house when you're 20 and you paid on it or you bought a house when you're 30 and it took you 20 years to pay it off because you're putting it all in but you haven't saved until you're 50 then you've got such a short window to save for retirement that you have to ramp that up to such a significant level that it's extremely uncomfortable because you don't have time on your side and so you know the time element is critical in order to, to save for, for retirement for those future goals. Brandon, you have a story on enrollment meetings? Yeah. Yeah. So earlier in my career, you know, I, I would do 
and, and still do enrollment meetings where we go into 401k plans, you know, that are sponsored by a company and, and I go in and, and different companies want different things, right? But, but oftentimes we'll go in and I'll stand up in front of everyone and be like, hey guys, here's what's amazing about a 401k. And, and I remember early in my career, I mean, I just had my slide deck, you know, yeah. I was like, this is so inspirational. Once these people see compounding interest and what it can do for them, right. they're just all going to be floored. You know, I get up, I do my dance, I like, you know, show them all these things. And I'm looking, I think they're just wowed. And I'm all right, who wants to sign up? You know, and like half the people who are eligible would actually sign up. I was like, what? And so I talked to the other people like, oh, oh I'm yeah. thinking that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, maybe, you know, it seems yeah. to be a consistent number. But I'd go to the people who aren't signing up and be like, hey, you know, what, what, why aren't we signing? What can we do? You know, and, yeah. and, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, totally get it. That's all great. I totally, huge, but this makes sense. Um, just this year is crazy. You know, I've had a couple this and this and this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, totally get it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll catch you next year. You know, next year, come around, do my dance. Hey, we're going to do it. Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened. You know, we're going to have to push it off. And, and, you know, after a few years of that, I realized, holy cow, it's the same people, right? Yeah. It's the same people who never sign up and they always have something that is taking precedence or some emergency or some reason why they can't sign up. And, and I think that's why it's important. I've said this before, but making it automatic, right? And, and even if you can't, even if you can't sign up for the full 5% with a match, let's get going on 1%, you know, and, and you won't notice 1% most more times than not. The way to calculate that, right? If you're listening at home, you take your gross check, whatever that big number is, and you multiply it by 0.01. And that will give you 1% of your check and will be approximately how much will be reduced off your check. Um, and, and it's amazing to me, especially when you're getting started, right? That's a pretty small amount. Um, when I was getting started in the career, we were saving up to buy our first house, right? And I was like, oh, I should probably save. And then I was offered a 401k. I was like, how can I be, uh, you know, promoting 401ks and not <laughs> participating? So, you know, I signed Good up. Point. Yeah. I signed up. I'm, I'm going to do this anyway. And, and I've been amazed. First, I was amazed at how much we didn't miss it. But then secondly, how much it built up over time, mm -hmm. you know, as, as my income grew and as the contribution grew and then the match on top of it, it just takes off. And so I think, you know, if, if, if you can't afford it or you think you can't afford it, right, it's a really good idea because usually you can. Usually we can work it out in the budgets elsewhere. But start at 1%. And then a lot of 401ks offer an automatic increase feature mm. so that every year it increases it from 1 to 2, from 2 to 3, from 3 to 4. And before you know it, you're saving 10% of your income. You don't even feel it. And, man, your future will thank you. You know, it, it'll mm. just really build. And, and so I think doing those things make all the difference. Brandon, you've got matching on notes here. Talk about the power of matching and the doubling of your money real quick. Yeah, so, so a lot of 401ks, not all, but a lot of 401ks will, will give what's called a match. And that means, you know, if you participate in the plan, um, the employer will turn around and, and match your contribution. Now, those matches are all different, and it, and it depends on the 401k, so you have to ask them. But, you know, some will match 50 cents on the dollar all the way up to a certain, to 6%, maybe. And so if I contribute 6%, then the company will do 3% of my income. And suddenly I'm doing 9% total. Mm -hmm. um, probably the most common match we see is, is dollar for dollar on the first 3%. And then 50 cents on the dollar in the second two. So I have to contribute five mm. and then the employer will give me four. But man, that, I mean, a lot of times this is a hundred percent risk-free rate of return on your money instantly 
I mean, you just can't find that right anywhere else. And the reason you find it is because your employer wants to encourage you and incentivize you to save for retirement. And so, man, even the small amounts build up, but if you can get an employer to then start matching on top of it, that, that, that really builds. Um, one, one other point there is, is I can't tell you how often I've met with clients like, Oh, my 401k plan's a waste employer doesn't match. You know, it's just a 401k plan. Um, but what they don't realize is, is even if they, even if there is not the match and the match is powerful, but even if there's not a match, it's still highly beneficial, right? We have, we have a lot of small business owners who you're, you're automatically saving three to 5% anyway. Yeah, that helps, right? Making yeah. it automatic. It comes yep. out of the check tax yep. benefits. Um, but we'll have small business owners, right? And obviously they're not getting matched and they're matching themselves. So it's, right. you know, no big right. deal, but they'll pay, you know, a fair amount of administrative fees and stuff to start up a 401k plan for themselves to enable them to get this tax deferred savings or to mm. save all this money into Roth. And so even if you don't have a match, it's a highly powerful plan. Rex, talk to me about vesting because, um, you know, sometimes people change jobs, you know, and, and so like, how long do you need to stay at a job and, and how does that work as far as vesting goes? Yeah, vesting is just a fancy word for ownership, right? And so um, vesting essentially just means that as the company puts money a match into a 401k plan, sometimes it's vested immediately and sometimes it's vested over a you know, three to six year period. The vast majority are set at five years. And so that means that if you leave in year two, your money is always your money. So you take your money with you wherever you go. You can take it to a new employer plan. You can roll it into an IRA account. Um, you, know, you have different options available, but only 20% if it was a five year, five year vesting schedule of the employer's contributions would go with you. And so here you are, you worked for two years, you saved, you got the match, but now you're only getting 20% of that match that was put in for you because you left and then you change jobs. And so then you start over and you start contributing. And again, your money is your money, but, and you're, you're getting the match and it's vesting. And now two years later, again, you change jobs. And so again, you're giving away 80% of that match. And so it doesn't seem like a lot when you're, you know, in your early twenties and starting out life, but again, you know, the secret to compounding interest is what? It's time. And so you're losing the time value of that match and having to start over two or three jobs. I'd, I'd heard recently, I was at a, at a top advisor conference this past week, and, and it was interesting because one of the stats that was thrown out, we all know that the vast majority of stats are made up on the spot, right? But, but the stat was- the, 76%? Of them, yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the made-up stats on the spot, and so seventy-six percent. So the average person today has twelve jobs by the time they're fifty. Was the stat that was thrown out? So I don't know if that's right, wrong, Oof. indifferent. I haven't checked it, but even if it's ten, or if it's eight, or if it's six, it doesn't matter. It's a lot, and so you're losing a lot on that vesting, and so that's something that as you're changing jobs, you should be taking into consideration. Um, as to having to start over on that retirement savings. So does that answer your question, I think, Brandon, on the vesting? Yep, I was doing the math in my head and I think oh, and I think I'm at eight and I'm approaching 50. <laughs> so so yeah. it's probably close. Um, and yeah, I, and I think- 401k plans are, are interesting, right? Because in the scheme of things, they're relatively new, 
right? Yeah. For, the 401k provision um, in the Internal Revenue Code came out in 1978, roughly. And, and so you're, you're saying that that's roughly only 50 years old is the entire 401k plan and 401k plan system. And, and that's kind of an infant in the scheme of things, in the scheme of money. And so, you know, we still talk about it and people now understand kind of what a 401k plan is. There's still, you know, we still have a lot of education over vesting, over matching, over different kinds of things that are, that are involved in it. But back in 78, when it was created, there was about 170, and I'm going to round a little bit, but about 175 million that were subject to pension plans back yeah. then. And, and so the 401k provision was put in just to supplement Social Security and pension. It was supposed to be the third leg of a three-legged stool was the 401k plan. And over the last 50 years, now, today, I think there's only about 75 to 80 million that are subject to pension plans. Um, and so it's become the primary savings source for people for their retirement. And so to make sure that you understand the vesting and how that works and how if you're changing jobs frequently and you're losing out on the owners or the company match is significant on, on your future. And so you do want to take that into consideration. And then how does the 401k differ from a traditional Roth that also differs from a, or a traditional IRA that diff, differs from a Roth IRA? Yeah, so. Uh, so so the Roth and, and traditional, first, let's just separate IRAs and 401ks. Yeah. Right. So a 401k is an employer-sponsored retirement plan, right, that has to go through an employer, where an IRA account stands for individual retirement account. And so that's sponsored just by an individual, essentially. And, and so that's that's the first difference is one's company sponsored, one's individually sponsored. Um, and then we get into, you know, the contribution limits. We get into, you know, the tax implications, they, things along those lines. And so I'll, I'll let Brandon go through that. It, it's not uncommon for people to get that confused and, and have questions. I mean, the Roth feature was only added in 1998, right? The Roth is only 25 years old. I mean, if that was a human, they'd barely be old enough to, to drink and to, you know, go and, and do things. Spend um, it all. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, 25, they're, they're still just starting out life, right? Yeah. And that's what a Roth is. It's only 25 years old. And so it is still fairly new in the scheme of, of retirement savings and planning. And, and, and because we're so entrenched in it, as far as Brandon and I, you know, we just expect everybody to know and to be aware and, and we obviously educate on it. But I mean, 25 years is not very long in the, in the history of money. So. Sure. Brandon? Yeah, not not only that, but but Roth, the Roth option within the 401k is somewhat recently adopted more wide scale, right? It's been around for a little bit, but but now most, I, I mean, I remember early in my career, you couldn't assume that you could do a Roth contribution in a 401k. Most times you couldn't. Now it seems like most all for, not all, but most all 401ks allow that Roth. And I think that that can kind of make understanding the public knowledge of 401ks maybe a little bit murky because all these things we're talking about, do you have a match? How much is the match? Well, it depends, right? It depends on the 401k plan. Is, is your match vested? Well, it depends. A lot of times it is. Sometimes it's not. Is, you know, does your 401k plan allow Roth? Well, maybe, you know, it depends. And so if, if you want to know the answers to all of this, 
talk to us. <laughs> just kidding. Or or go and get your plan with Baxter.com. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Or, or you go and get your your four hundred one k plan summary plan description is what that's called. So you go and in, go into HR, say, hey, want to participate in the four hundred one k? Do you have a summary plan description? And that should be just a couple pages going over the highlights, right? Does it allow Roth? What's the match? What's the vesting? When am I eligible? And so that's a good thing to get your hands on if you really want to understand what your 401k is capable of. Rex, uh, because we're talking accumulation phase, and this could happen at any point in your life, let's say you went through uh, a divorce and your life has changed, and so now you're in your mid to late 40s, early 50s, and you're essentially starting over. Is it too late to start uh, a 401k, a Roth IRA? No, it's never too late to start. And, and so if you go through some sort of significant life event like a divorce or, or a death in, in a couple or something like that, and, or, or, you know, you start up a business and it went bankrupt, right? And then, then you're starting over. It's never too late to start and you do need to start. The question becomes, um, to, you know, which, which way is better and, and what's the difference between Roth versus traditional, which goes back to your, to your last question. And so essentially the, the, question becomes a tax question as far as what tax bracket am I in today versus what tax bracket am I going to be in in the future. And so a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k comes out before federal and state taxes. And so that means that if it's traditional, it's never been taxed before by the federal government or the state governments. And so it, it goes in and then as it accumulates, it's not getting taxed, it's tax deferred on a traditional. And then when you go to pull it out in retirement, then we have to pay taxes on it. So if you're in a high tax bracket today, because you're in your higher earning years and your projection, because you haven't saved a lot, you may be in a significantly lower tax bracket in retirement. Then in that situation, it'd be better to pay taxes later at a lower tax bracket. And so we would guide you towards the traditional feature. If you're in a lower tax bracket today, um, because you're just kind of getting started out in a career, things like that, or you're just climbing a, a new corporate ladder and you anticipate to be in a higher tax bracket in retirement because you've saved a lot of money or you have significant assets to where you may be selling real estate or you may be selling a business or things throughout retirement, then we would rather pay taxes today at what we think is a lower tax bracket and put it into a Roth, which is an after tax. And so that money goes in after your money has been taxed by by the federal and state governments and then it grows tax-free as opposed to tax deferred and then in retirement you pull it out but you're not having to pay taxes on those dollars because they've already been taxed and so it is important to understand the differences between the two um you know no two situations are ever the same and so it is important to run through and and project out but, but there are a lot of variables we have no idea what tax rates are going to be tomorrow, much less 10 years from now or 20 years from now. I was going to say that and assumes so, that uh, our friends who create these tax rates aren't making dramatic changes either way. Well, and, and yeah, I, even as it is, we know the tax rates, if nothing changes, they go up significantly in 2026. They mm. revert back to the 2016 tax rates. Mm. And so there are certain things that we do know if nobody acts, but 
they could act. Be, you know, I have no idea what economists can do. I'm not a mind reader. And so, you know, we want to, it's nice to have choices. It's nice to sit there and say, yes, I think that this is more likely to be my situation. And so I may weight my contributions a little heavier in that direction, but I don't know. And so I may do a little bit of both, right? Okay. Based upon where I think I'm going to be. All right, let's move ahead to uh, allocation, investment allocation, stocks versus bonds. Stocks historically are more volatile, but they do have better returns. Bonds are steadier historically, but with lower returns. When it comes to investment allocation, Rex, where do people begin? Well, I just was chuckling that bonds are a little more steady, but not this year. So, you know, it's it's interesting because bonds bonds typically are steadier and, and typically, um, you know, you you are getting a little bit lower return because you're taking less risk. But but the risk that, that people aren't aware or, or don't typically pay a lot of attention to is interest rate risk on on bonds. And that's probably one of the most significant risks that you have with bonds is interest rate risk and default risk. And an interest rate risk means that when bonds, you know, when interest rates go up, then typically bond prices come down. And, and typically the longer the duration of the bond, the longer until maturity, um, then typically the more volatile that bond is. And we've been through, you know, a significant interest rate hiking cycle over the last year and a half. Um, that, that may or may not be all the way done yet. And so, it, you know, it, it's been a rough bond market, one of the roughest bond markets we've had in probably 20, maybe even 30 years would be my guess. Um, and so I think diversification is key. I'm going to let Brandon talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the allocation, stocks, bonds, ages, um, where we need to be. But that that's why I was kind of chuckling there for a minute. So, so. Rough as in, I mean, because what's the rate of return on bonds right now? Well, I mean, there's some bonds that were down 30% over the last 12 months, mm. right? And so, I mean, it's been an, an extremely difficult period. Now, if you go in and you buy a bond today, and there's lots of different kinds of bonds, yeah. right? You have um, you have treasury bonds, you have treasury notes, you've got mortgage-backed bonds, you have corporate bonds, you have municipal bonds, and then all of those have sub-tranches within themselves based upon their credit rating, based upon the riskiness of the of the paying entity um, and the security of those cash flows. And so to think that, that that's not a complex area of the market would be fooling yourself. It's a very complex you know, area of the market and, and lots of decisions on how risky do I want my bond portfolio? Do I wanna own individual bonds or do I want to hire a manager to manage my bonds in a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund? And, and so there, there's a lot of questions that delve into bonds. Brandon? Yeah, I'd like to ask people, because when you're in the accumulation phase, that's typically younger, and typically you've got time before retirement, you know, and, and if you've got time on your side, um, we, we usually are able to take a little bit more risk, let that portfolio, it's going to move up and down, but let it grow. Um, but what I like to ask people, what is risk, right? Like what, when, what do you think risk is in the market? And, 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 and I, I ask, you know, do you, like, do you think we're ever going to, I'm ever going to call you up and be like, bad news, stock market's gone. 
and never coming back, you know, like, like maybe it's possible, you know, any, anything's possible, but, but that, that would probably include, you know, Walmart closing their doors saying, we'll never be able to make money again. Apple, like, yeah, we're not making iPhones anymore. You know, like we can't make money. Amazon saying, yeah, we're closing shop. There's bigger problems if that happens. Right. It's a little bit more apocalyptic. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, cause what, what is it that drives the value of stocks? It's, these companies' ability to make profits. And as long as these companies are making profits and kicking off, you know, money, I mean, there, there's a value there. Even, let's say, and this would never happen, but let's say they were, the value was worth zero, but they were still just paying whoever held their stock money every every quarter, right? Or every every year. Would, everybody would go out and want to buy those so they get the money and then it would jump the price up. And so, you know, as long as companies are able to make money, then, then we have a very high probability that, that the stock market's going to come back, right? And that's why, you know, probably why it has over, over all this time. And so as, as you start to understand what risk is within an investment portfolio, you realize that risk is, is the, the, the capacity of the market to fall, and it will, right? It'll, it'll drop down, get cut in half, whatever. And then it may take several years for that to recover and, and bounce back up. And, and if you're in retirement, that, that kind of risk oftentimes isn't, isn't okay, right? You can't, you can't get through that. You can't have your whole portfolio just cut in half one day. But if you're young and you're just starting out, and we know that historically speaking, that's provided some of the best rates of return, even with the downturns, then, then you know, it might not be such a bad thing. Mm. Not only that, but volatility is not your enemy, right? In fact, volatility is your friend. I, I ask people all the time in enrollments, if we could custom design, we knew the S&P 500 was here today, it'll be here in 20 years and you can choose your ride, right? The S&P 500, if it's just flat or if it's going up and down, up and down, up and down and ends at the same spot, which one do you choose? Right. And it's a trick question because everybody wants the, st the steady flat line. Yeah. But you're better off with the volatile. Why? Because if you're saving into a 401k every month, when the market's up, you're buying fewer shares. When the market crashes down, you buy a bunch yeah. of shares. Yeah. And what it does, it's called dollar cost averaging. Over time, your purchase price is actually less than the average price. Mm -hmm. And so while you're saving a, that volatility, that's your friend. But but the reverse is true in retirement, right? Once we're pulling distributions out, it, it works against us. And so really understanding what risk is and where and what types of risk we're taking can help someone feel more comfortable being in the appropriate portfolio that's going to get them the better rates of return long term. Okay, let's talk insurance. When you are building wealth in the accumulation phase, at what point do you say, I need to spend money on insurance? Is it at the beginning when you're trying to find a, a way to build a uh, emergency fund? Is it during paying off debt? Is, you know, when, when do you consider insurance, Brandon? Yeah, so, so you know, insurance in general, I always like to have this discussion. Insurance companies are for-profit entities, right? Like, like when you in, enter into a contract with an insurance company, the odds of them winning that, that little exchange of money is pretty high. Um, in, in fact, most insurance companies are set up so that every dollar you pay into an insurance company, you're going to receive about 60 cents back. That spread of 40 cents is to cover brick and mortar buildings, you know, commissions, underwriting costs. I mean, there's costs to running a business and, and profits in a business, and that's in the 40%. The bottom 60% is paid out to, you know, the, the people who experience losses. And so with that in mind, I think it's important to approach insurance with maybe 
not skepticism, but 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 not trying to be overly insured, right? We're we're not getting rich off of insurance, um, but there are some things that we just can't afford to have happen, right? Like if my house burnt down today, that would devastate my financial plan. Um, I'd be able to work through it, but man, it would have a lasting impact. If I were to pass away today, my family, like what what would what would my wife and kids do, right? They they, they they would have to sell our house. They would have to move in with in-laws. They would, you know, probably be subject to a life without very much, you know, and, and, and for me, I, I just don't want that. Obviously if I were to become disabled, right. And not able to work because I had cancer, I had, uh, some sort of illness or, or, or I got in an accident or something that, that would, I mean, same thing, right. It, we would be destitute. And so there are some things that I'm willing to take, you know, that, bad bet, <laughs> right? That insurance and pay a premium to make sure that my family, m- myself and my family are taken care of. And so, you know, when you're reviewing your, your insurance, those are kind of the big ones, premature death, right? So life insurance, typically, especially in the accumulation phase, just get some term insurance. It's unbelievably inexpensive. Um, it's set rate, usually a 20 year term, right? So it's a, it's guaranteed not to increase in cost for 20 years. You have that set, set benefit amount. Um, so, so get your life insurance disability. Oftentimes if your work provides that, that's the best place to start getting a group disability policy. You can get a supplemental policy on top of that. If you want a little bit extra coverage, the Aflac, um, y- <laughs> you can, right. Um, typically we're talking about a more traditional policy, right? Okay. Not just like if you go to the hospital, here's five grand, right. And that's yes. not, not necessarily, not to say that's bad, but five grand's not going to change the whole picture now that I can't work for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, uh, home home insurance, obviously you need to go out. Rex and I, we don't do home and auto insurance, but it's an important piece of the plan, right? Make sure you have a good agent, you know, preferably that, that's independent, that can shop out the different companies for you um, and look at that. Health insurance, that's one of the number one reasons for bankruptcy is 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 health expenses, right? You get diagnosed with anything and it's going to be like $100,000, right? And so so we need health insurance. It doesn't mean we have to have like a Cadillac plan that's going to pay for everything I ever, you know, dream of. But but at least some plan that, that, that if I had cancer, if I got in a car accident, you know, my max out of pocket is going to be 13 grand. I can come up with that, right? I, I, I can make that up. Even if you can't come up with it, you, that $13,000 of debt is doable, 2 million, never going to, never going to work. Um, and so, so, and that's obviously not a comprehensive list, but those are some of the high ones that you want to make sure that you've got those in place. All right. Rex, Rex Baxter, Brandon Smith, planwithbaxter.com. Thanks so much for, uh, helping us figure out this, this, uh, accumulation phase. Is there anything that we're missing Rex on the accumulation phase of wealth? Um, whether you're in your twenties or in your fifties, you should, you're going to hopefully go through this uh, uh, accumulation phase in your life. No, but I, I think if I were to try and summarize it a, a little bit is, is get your emergency fund, right? Pay down debt, get that paid down, pay yourself first and, and pay yourself into the 401k plan, get your savings going, avoid the avoidable, um, meaning cover the insurance, you know, issues and, and diversify if you need to diversify but understand that the risk is not your enemy during the during the accumulation phase. Yeah. That it's okay to to push yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone in order to try and and achieve you know some of those better returns during that accumulation phase. 
and, and trying to get that money to compound. Time is your friend with the accumulation phase. So the earlier you can start, the better, but it's never too late to start. So that's that would kind of be my summary into it. I love it. Time is your friend. Rex, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Through the Pines. Also, thank you to Brandon in studio here. For more information, please visit planwithbaxter.com where Rex and Brandon are at your service. Any time of day, actually. You can log on <laughs> at 3 in the morning in your PJs. They probably won't answer your, their, your email, though, if you send them a message at that time. So this has been Through the Pines, reminding you to use yesterday's dollars to finance tomorrow's dreams. <laughs>